Good morning. This is Tal M. Klein, the author of The Punch Escrow. I'll see you in the future. Regular Hours, episode 155 for March 16th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenplum. And I'm Pam Bedore. And look at us, the celebration, the one year anniversary of Sandwiches at Irregular Hours this week. How about that? There's too much scrolling, Steve. Okay, so fine. We started with too much scrolling. We didn't technically adopt the name Sandwiches at Irregular Hours until we got to that story in Sherlock Holmes. But one year ago this week, March 17th, Pam was on our old show, Too Much Scrolling, and we were discussing all sorts of fun topics. And we um, said... I think the end of the world came up, maybe? Well... Well, yeah. And so, yeah. You know, happy, fun topics like that. Yeah. Happy one an, one year anniversary of the end of the world. Also, everyone, you, you, those of you who are still listening, congratulations. Uh, the, the world ended a year ago and it's going well so far, just so you know. Uh, th this, this the, the time that Pam spends with us, that counts towards her sainthood, right? She has to have two miracles and she's been with us for a year. That Does that count as a full miracle? I don't know that it's miracle level yet, but yes, she is a saint for putting up with the two of us, for sure. <laughs> so one year ago, March 18th, 2020, we started our daily reading of every word of Sherlock Holmes from Arthur Conan Doyle. We got through every piece of it and said, this is fun. We should do a book club. And here we are, 155 episodes later. Pam, thank you so much for this year of education, this year of excitement, and, and a year of friendship. Absolutely, you guys. Thank you for having me on and for introducing me to like a million great concepts, including the Clark Bar. And let's <laughs> so let's also throw this out. Thank you for any patron who's who's helped make this possible, and also thanks for any listener who's taken the time to write and and, and say something to us. And our musicians. Let's let's go with our patrons who are paying the bills and our musicians who are giving us the great music. That's Grenadier. I, I really want you to go to our show notes and look up Grenadier. I love every one of their albums. And uh, I hear rumor that there might be a new Grenadier album on its way. So we, we might get some new music coming up real soon. Well, if only they had some time, you know? If there was only something that would stop the world to give you an opportunity to kind of Go out there and revisit some, some things from your youth. Absolutely. This week, we are reading through Rassel by Jeff Smith. This is Act 3 of that book. These were published in 2010 and 2011, and we get the title of Part 3, Romance at the Speed of Light. Does What does Rassel mean anyway? Do we think that romance at the speed of light, R-A-T-S-O-L, wrestle, might mean the romance at the speed of light? I think we have our definition. Huh. We have a romance story here, Pam. Well, and we also have romance in the more um, historical meaning. Right. So I think that today we think of romance as a genre of fiction. You got science fiction, detective fiction, Western romance. And there you have it. These are genres that where we know the conventions and we have certain expectations. 
but historically the term romance meant adventure right hmm. and so i think that this is perhaps calling upon both it's an adventure at the speed of light where russell is moving through these different universes so quickly that he can't even always know exactly where he is uh, and then we also have that romance idea that Russell is very much marked by the tattoo of Maya and this notion of the soulmate that crosses universes with him. So I like that. I like that idea that R-A-S-L stands for romance at the speed of light now, but it also asks us to think about Sal, who we totally, was it just me or did we have no Sal in this no, third book? No Sal. No, no. But, no Sal, Sal, of course, is an acronym, right? So does that mean that Sal is speed at light? <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, guys, but I'll go with it. I still argue that Sal is just short for Salamander, and I love mm -hmm. last week how Chip actually adopted that and kept saying Salamander. <laughs> I don't think that that's really a part of the text, Chip. I just made that up, but he's a lizard-looking mm -hmm. creature named Sal Amander. <laughs> and readers matter. This all comes back to reader response theory. Reader. Who owns this? The writer or the or the, the reader? Hmm? Hmm? We own it. We own it, guys. We own the experience. <laughs> so, <laughs> and when we're talking about romance, we get this really interesting part at the beginning in chapter eight, the beginning of this section, where Rob tells Maya, hey, maybe we should stop sleeping together since, uh, you know, you're married to the guy that I work with. And, you know. Not just to that guy that I work with, my best friend from eighth grade, for God's sake. I mean, they are absolutely close friends. Right. And and here we are with the, the wife and the, that's uh, not, not a good exactly. situation. So now I have to say that like, Russell's approach there to saying, oh boy, this is a pretty classic move in a patriarchal monogamy driven society to be like, I shouldn't sleep with my best friend's wife. But Maya says, oh no, no, no. Actually, this is really good for all of us because our affair is providing an additional spark of creativity to all of our great science. So this is actually a positive. And, you know, we live in interesting times in the 21st century because I think we do have a lot of challenges to notions of monogamy. A lot of anthropological research suggests that monogamy is really pretty patriarchal. It's way more for the benefit of men than for women. Why would we want our partner to be monogamous? Women always know who the father of their babies are, or they can, you know, they have access to that information. It's men who want women to be monogamous so they know who their offspring are, historically, anthropologically. So there's actually a lot of scholarship on triangular nature of desire is there when you have an erotic triangle is that linked to creativity is that linked to new insights and i think that sort of link between the erotic and the creative it's very fascinating and i was intrigued by that element of this novel i was just really curious what you guys thought well i grabbed hold of it too uh, uh -huh. as i was reading it i don't know if jeff particularly set out to make that statement. He may have, but certainly it was there and certainly uh, something to read into. So I, I, I found it fascinating too. 
Yeah, I don't think she is wrong by saying we are actively being creative. You love me, I love you, and we both love Miles in different ways. But that idea of that connectivity, that connection between the three of us, that's what's fueling the science, fueling the work. That's beautiful. He does actively break off the romance with her here he does you know get her keys and he says that it's over and that's the moment when there's an accident in the lab and she is vaporized oh that's heartbreaking well and it's interesting because he actually sticks with that more traditional notion and so he doesn't he doesn't participate in this new sort of queer idea of the relationship between the erotic and the creative. And in a sense, he's punished for it. Ooh. Oh, that's, that's a very interesting reading, Pam. Wow. We see the mysterious little girl suddenly reappearing. She gestures, crossing out Maya's name on Rassel's arm, that tattoo that we've seen from basically page one. She then goes on to non-verbally explain the intersecting circles, the Venn diagram imagery here. And, and they're not using it as a Venn diagram, but it is a Venn diagram. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's, it has a different type of symbolism, but it is, it is ultimately a Venn diagram. For those who are, who are listening, who don't remember what a Venn diagram is two circles. They each have c contain whatever ideas. And then they cross those just you know, barely, and there is a part that intersects that uh, takes these two you know, ideas and, and shows how they're, they, they, they connect and maybe how they share some, something together. One of my favorite Venn diagrams from popular culture is about the book and the movie World War Z. So there's this great Venn diagram that has the book, the movie, and the part that intersects is the title. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was about to. I was about to say. Wait, did you watch the movie World War Z? Because that is such a great book. That's I Max love Brooks. that novel. That is Max Brooks. That is the yeah. son of Mel Brooks. Is it really? Also, writer of the Zombie Survival Guide, which I also very much enjoy. Great writer, and then that movie just is not that story. At it's it's all. not a terrible movie. It just has no relation. Yeah. to that wonderful novel but but anyway so the venn diagram is that idea of like finding the intersections finding the things that two different elements have in common and i think it's interesting that we have these two symbols right because we have the symbol of the maze as well as the symbol of the venn diagram which both sort of ask us to think about connections and to think about choices and they both really fit into these questions of time and space and the various ways that we can philosophically locate time and space. And locate our place in those circles. The, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of thinking about existence in this section. A lot of thinking about how we interact with each other and what is the basis, what is the real meaning of all of it. Then I love that we actually now in this segment of the book in act three, we get the panhandler who goes by the name the president also crossing universes. And guys, how much did you love when he came across and Russell's like, 
oh no, I know this guy. This is not good. We got more people moving over and he's remembering the previous universe. And the panhandler says, oh, by the way, you know that creepy little girl that we've all been wondering about? That's God. <laughs> I found that so satisfying, but I don't know what you guys thought. <laughs> I thought Alanis Morissette looks <laughs> terrible in this book. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and, and think about what the child is portraying. This is a... a a person who has difficulty lost difficulty communicating as we would traditionally communicate. She's pointing mm -hmm. to things, almost like the ghost of Christmas Future in uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. She has uh, got weird face uh, facial expressions. She communicates, but it's not it's not how we would normally perceive it. So, and she's also a child, so there's some some symbolic uh, relationship there, maybe uh, weak or, or innocent or something. Something's going on there. I just note regarding the, the issue of her being a child. So is it fair to say she's sort of drawn almost as a zombie child, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so here's the, here's the thing about a child. A child in many ways represents the future, right? Represents hope. And a zombie child is a really complex symbol because it's a living dead child. And so it represents both hope and despair in a single person. And guys, in a sense, to call that God, That's pretty good. it's all of these different systems of meaning intersecting. And so that notion of this little girl who's a zombie child, God. And back to Alanis Morissette real quick. Of course. of course, of course, God can't speak because we humans can't hear the voice of God. If we hear the voice of God, then we are destroyed. So, of course, the Alanis Morissette zombie child can't speak. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? <laughs> now, and that assertion that this little girl is God, and again, we don't know if that's true. This panhandler slash president told us so. It leads us into chapter nine, which I'm sure, Steve, was your favorite chapter. Nope. <laughs> first, first seven pages are an info dump about the entity collectively known as God. Here, everyone, you've never thought about God. Let me explain. God is a, a different idea in different cultures. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Nobody loves an info dump like our friend Steve. Oh, <laughs> well, you, you may, and so certainly this was written for mature audiences. So I, you know, I, I'm not sure if there are a lot of people who haven't explored mythology or other cultures' version of what they feel is God. But I mean, if this was written for young people, maybe this would have been better received by you. But it, but it isn't. This is a, a mature. This was written for a mature audience. What if God was one of us? Oh my goodness! <laughs> Just a slob like one of us. <laughs> oh my God, Steve! But, but I mean, I think that part of what he's doing here is he's asking us to really look at those symbols, right? He's telling us this origin story with the Great Spirit, the Elder Brother, the Spider Goddess. He's talking about the idea that you know, different cultures in our universe, you know, just multiply that are going to, everyone has this desire to create an origin story. They're all going to be a bit different, but they're going to be some common threads, right? 
like he's kind of asking us, like, what is the purpose of origin stories? And as soon as you ask that question, you're also asking, like, what's the power of story, of literature? So there's something very, I didn't mind this info dump at all. I'm going to, I'm going to stand by this info dump. There's something very metafictional and satisfying about saying, you know what? Stories really matter and they're universal to the human experience. It's not, I'm going to add some addition to that. It's not just that. These are stories that have been simplified. They, they lasted through the ages. So it's not like your latest novel that 10,000 years from now may not make it into the, the creative consciousness. These are ones that began whatever time they did. Was it 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago? It doesn't matter as you go back and, and you see Native American or Aborigines or, or th there's stories that they get passed from one generation to another and they use symbols and, and um, things that, and for you, Steve, I mean, going to a Catholic church, you, they, they've got them all around the church. They're, they're, they're written for illiterates. They were um, the, the Christ story there. Stations of the Cross. The Stations of the Cross? Is that what you're referring to? Okay. Yes. Uh, yes. The symbolism of that journey, that life journey, is certainly there in the story of all sorts of people, including Christ. Uh, sure. Agreed. Sure. So it, it, it's one of those things where the idea of being able, how can we take whatever story, how man evolved from wherever they did, to today or or and then passing it on um mm -hmm. to the next generation so I, I think that that was certainly maybe something that was touched upon probably consciously by mm -hmm. uh, by jeff and then i really like that this little info dump um or this reflection on different theological traditions um and mythic traditions is then followed by our friend the president slash panhandler saying oh by the way guys i saw a ufo and so I was sort of like, that's so fun, right? How did you read that? Is this like truth, misinterpretation, delusion? Is this commenting on the fact that most of our origin stories do not, in fact, account for the possibility of aliens? Here's where I think that I really lost the narrative. Has she, she she's seen um, what is the conspiracy uh, show that you love so much? The today? History Channel, uh, no, Ancient Aliens. No, no, not Ancient Aliens. What's the, what's the one with uh, Mulder and, and Oh, the X Files. That's right. So it's it's listen. There's a smoking man, and it just keeps going on and on and on. The idea here is, oh, and by the way, maybe your tiny little view of the world is is only your perspective. The wider universe might have all sorts of things that you don't know about. And yes, aliens have been mentioned before in this story. Jeff Smith wrote about how the summer before high school, Miles, the scientist, and our Rassel were into the idea of this conspiracy of the aliens. And were there really alien contacts, plural, that happened in the 1950s? What do you think about putting aliens here, Pam? Well, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I just thought it sort of commented on the anthropocentric nature of our origin stories and how so many of our origin stories just barely take into account animals with whom we live all the time on our earth and really don't always account 
for the possibility of others outside of our planet. Hmm. What was the Star Trek where they talked to the whales, Steve? Uh, Star Trek for the voyage home. That was a test, wasn't it? <laughs> and you passed. Great job. <laughs> now, in another test, did you guys notice some great signs and portents throughout this segment? I really love the visual where Uma asks Rob if he believes in reincarnation or falling in love or something inexplicable. And then there's this crazy visual disturbance. And can we pause to talk about the art? I'm loving the visuals of this book. I don't know what you guys are thinking on that matter. So I originally read this in black and white. Mm. And so without the color. So mm -hmm. it was more noir. I like Jeff Smith's storytelling style. It's certainly cartoony at times, mm -hmm. but not, not, not like Bone, where it was um, maybe funny animal cartoony. But, and then, then there's, they throw some realism at that part of it. And then I really think that he uses, he's mastered the craft of visual storytelling, as in when the fingers are showing up, it's not five fingers, it's, it's lots of fingers. And then you get the spark and this explosion and where things are happening two or three times in the same panel showing that two or three realities are going on at the same time. And then the idea of expanding it to, you know, hundreds of realities. Mm -hmm. that, that you can see where as an artist that would be a very challenging thing to depict for the reader yeah this was my favorite part for the artwork the ch chapter 11 the event where we see dimensions crashing and Rassel is seeing multiple umas and then we find out that the character of Uma is also seeing this. This is not just something that's happening for Rassel. She is a part of this extra-dimensional travel. There's just these beautiful drawings with, with multiple Umas and two full-facing pages on the print copy. Yes. Uh, I'm really enjoying the art of this. I've enjoyed the art of this more than the narrative of this. This section in particular has so few words, but it tells that story graphically. So, and here's a question I have for you. I originally read this in black and white. I'm reading along with you guys. I'm reading a color version. What do you think the color's adding? I can only imagine, but the colors are so stunning. They did such a great job. The desert colors versus the colors in the house versus the colors in this dimensional weirdness. There, there are well-defined color palettes, and I, I really enjoy this art. Yeah, I do too. This is very, very vivid, and so it makes it quite realistic. And I think that this storytelling relies a lot on sort of portents. And so I think that those are especially vivid in the colored version. Again, I'm guessing because I haven't, I haven't read the black and white. So when we get these visual disturbances, one of the thing that happens to Rob is that he gets a nosebleed and that blood is so red, right? And so now it reminded me that we have seen a nosebleed to indicate a time or dimension disturbance before. Were you guys reminded of anything? 
100%. I put it right into the notes just when I got there. We just finished reading Recursion by Blake Crouch for our last month's book. And yes, that is one of those tropes that if you want to show visually that something has happened in a character's mind, the easiest way to do it is to say that, well, something is leaking out of that mind and the nosebleed is, is pretty easy to do. But yeah, there it is right there. Something is happening. And that's the only indication that the characters, other than Rassel, get of this disturbance. You're interesting that we called it a trope in the sense, you know, the, the, the change happened. And how do we have to show that? We have to show that, I don't know, the brain expanded, something happened, nosebleed becomes shorthand for, oh, something happened. Yeah, because if he was bleeding out of his eyes or his ears, that's a totally different thing that symbolizes some real trauma. But nosebleed is something that's pretty natural. Most people go through life and have a nosebleed or two. That's something that occasionally happens. And whenever I get a nosebleed, I think, hmm, I wonder if I just switch dimensions. <laughs> As do we all, Steve. As do we all. It all works better. <laughs> well and guys and there's also something like we know our blood is supposed to be on the inside and so you know whenever we see our blood that's a disruption and i think you're completely right to to point to the the nose is like the less disruptive orifice but that idea there's something very visceral about that mm -hmm. once see the blood something has gone wrong that is one of the speeches that i didn't get to give this year because we didn't do our winter musical whenever we have our first day with backstage crew on our musical i tell them they are the brains of the show and if we see them on stage something has gone terribly <laughs> wrong you're not supposed to see your brains i like that <laughs> they always like that visual <laughs> now, another portent that I think is, again, really, really visually satisfying in color, although I bet it is in black and white too, is that this, this section ends with a bird crashing into the window and then a bunch of crows. I think they're crows. I hope they're crows. They're black birds of some sort. We, we could assume be, um, that they're crows. So we could say the invasive uh, species starlings, just... <laughs> well, they could be a murder of crows. Mm -hmm. They could be. One of my favorite mass nouns. But anyway, so we've got this, a bird crashes into the window, and then a giant group of black birds falls out of the sky. Mm -hmm. Break that down a little bit. What's the symbolism of a bird flying into a window? I, I, I don't know. I, I've always seen it as the intrusion of man into nature like they shouldn't have been frustrated by glass they are in their habitat and we are in the way that's the way that i've always read that i don't know, well, I like you know that. glasses glasses uh clear mm -hmm. and so you also could be not seeing the reality that's there Whoa. exactly Not right i think in this case i think that's i love both of those readings um but yeah so like if a bird doesn't see that humans have taken over their habitat it will die by not recognizing this technology that we've placed in the way and so i think that that's 
quite evocative in this text because we do have some people are aware and some people are not aware of this multi-universe travel. And so the bird, in fact, is a victim of not seeing the technology that's there. Wow. And, and here's the deal. The, the, the bird is not aware of what was going on either. So if there's some kind of zap of energy in the sky, they're just going by, uh, about their lives and, and they are a victim. They, they Going to work, going to school, whatever birds do. I don't know. No, that's fish. <laughs> fish go to school. Oh, boy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he was here all weekend. Well, and now I was actually intrigued by, you know, there's so many connections. Whenever you do book club, you'll see connections between different books. But in the Flash Forward TV show, there's a bunch of birds that fall out of the sky in Somalia, which gives people this notion that the Flash Forward technology has been tried before. And so I just thought it was very funny that we had such a clear reference to both recursion and Flash Forward that were totally accidental references, of course, but um, but it works for our purposes. It's one of those tropes, the, the birds yes. falling from the sky, you know, there is a danger in the air. It, my goodness, if, if there's a danger in the air and we humans are unaware of it, birds are going to be our first warning of something has gone wrong and we need to be uh, worried about it. There might have been a movie about it some time ago. Yes, Tippi Hedren uh, <laughs> is smiling from, from on high right now. <laughs> now, in September 2020, there was a mass die-off of birds in New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Nebraska, where tons and tons of birds fell from the sky, and it was connected to, to forest fires out of control and just to environmental degradation and climate crisis. Mm. So this is not exactly... The, we're not going to see fewer birds falling from the sky in the future, I think. Yes, the canary in the coal mine is sometimes exactly that. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah. Now, the other great visual, which you already referenced briefly, Steve, is the doppelganger, or in this case, the multi-ganger, where we have that. So doppelganger, of course, the German word, the double walker. It's the idea of having an exact replica of yourself. And here we get an infinite number of, of replicas. Now, this is really common in Gothic literature, as we've talked about before, because it taps into the uncanny. Now, why do you guys think it's so scary to see another version of yourself? Boy, it's, ah, uh, boy. Because um, it is, right? You know it is. Like, we should ask Tal Klein, Steve. Yes, Tal Klein wrote such an interesting book about teleportation and the idea of destroying the self in order to rebuild the self in another location. And the sci-fi element of that book is how if it went wrong and there were two of you walking around because the the first half of the teleportation went poorly then you've got a story that's called the punch escrow by the way one of my favorite books Ooh, i want to read that and i haven't thank you Steve. and, and in, in fact the the book went even further because who has the rights of the person the person who was supposed to be destroyed uh or the person who exists and if they both now exist who is the person wow i love that book we should re maybe we should read that book this is a great like book club where we just keep reading the books that I love. 
we switch between. We're reading the books. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to, for my pick next time. We're all, this is, but I love that idea. I will definitely read that book, whether we do it for book club or not. But I think that the doppelganger, it also gives you this idea. Like we all feel that we're so unique, right? Mm-hmm. And then the whole idea that maybe there are an infinite number of parallel universes in which there's someone just like me who's doing whatever they're doing, whatever I'm doing, you know, there, it's a challenge to our notion of individuality that can be both positive and negative. Because if we're too individual, then maybe we're not a good enough member of the community. But if we feel no individuality, then we're just conforming. So I think that it sort of comes into these questions of like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be self-actualized? See, I you went way deeper than I did. I was thinking more about temporality, about if I am seeing myself, time travel must be occurring and I must be in the wrong place or the other me must be in the wrong place because we are not supposed to see each other. That's the rules. Well, and you, but you're also assuming that it's an equal re- replica of you uh, because there are people who are very similar to you. In fact, there was an entire show on this or a study done on this where these were people who looked identically. So they went to the DNA level and I think they just basically pulled that up to see if they really, really were similar enough. And most of them were not although some of them shared a lot of the same traits. They look similar, but they were not the same people. Hmm. Mm. And that, I think that was a, a year ago or so. I'm so sorry, I don't have the name of it, but it, I remember watching it. Hmm. And then in this doppelganger moment, Uma sees God. And, and of course, we're using God here as, you know, the little girl. What if- <laughs> <laughs> the creepy child. Oh, boy. wow. Label the child. Pam, go ahead and label that child. Oh, boy. <laughs> Come on, yeah, that so- child is creepy and deliberately so. That yes. was <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and so now we know that like Uma can also see the child and then the child fades, which is super cool because now we're just thinking in the world, what world are we in where someone can actually fade away? Because that feels like a very technology-based moment. Does it? If- Matrix. The Matrix. The Matrix. Mm-hmm. But if she's God, doesn't God have powers like that? I guess I'm not 100% convinced she's God, but we can go with that. Okay. Because she's been described as God, the, the president of the street, who seems like the narrator, the person who's bringing us information, has described her as God. And he's explained how much she likes Clark bars. <laughs> and I think this is a hilarious ending, right? So we get this moment of like, what's happening with this girl, with we get the the duplication of Uma, this girl fades away, we've got the murder of crows falling from the sky, and then it all ends with a slightly obsolete candy bar. <laughs> slightly obsolete. That is my tagline. That's on my card. Stefan Foder, slightly obsolete. <laughs> Steve, do they even make Clark bars anymore? Technically they do, but the they has changed. Originally the Neko company that you might know for their Neko wafers. They were the ones that made the Clark bar originally. Uh, there was a there was a whole exchange. Neko company went bankrupt and a whole bunch of other companies took up the recipe and made Clark bars. They are 
uh, available, but they're very hard to find. I found out this week when I went to look for a Clark bar. <laughs> this would be what is the um, what is the place on the side of the road? The um, the country the country uh, restaurant that has all the old candies. That's where you would find it. Uh, the I bet you the Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel is what I'm thinking of. There you go. I think that they, maybe the candy shop around the corner in Dundee. Maybe I'll have to go over there and see if they have any Clark bars in stock. Okay. I feel like literature, is, literature is always at its best when it actually causes you to seek confections. <laughs> chocolate. Go grab some chocolate. <laughs> That's good writing. That's, That's all I'm saying. Hundred percent. I agree with writing. that completely. So that last, the last image of this section, "Romance at the Speed of Light," is just a picture of our protagonist surrounded by dead crows, with a, still some of the blood from his nosebleed on his face, holding a Clark bar, <laughs> holding it out for God. God, God, can you come? I, I have questions. God, I've got a Clark bar. <laughs> so, so next week we're going to finish up this book with Act Four, the Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla. Mm. So um, there you go, Steve. Maybe another info dump for you. And Pam, we'll enjoy the rest of it. <laughs> I just want to know where the narrative is going. I, I, I really think that there's a moment in part three where we've lost the narrative. Where are we going with this? We didn't even mention that there's another drifter. There's a, a third person who has access to this technology who is moving between the multiverse. That, I mean, that, that is lost to us in so, all of this and, and the question i would have is if there's one two three are there more are we all kind of doing the same thing you never know hmm. Hmm. Guess we'll we may out. or may not find out next week yeah that's right i don't know chip i think we have enough information to survive another week what do you think only if we can come back next week what do you think pam are we uh ready for the the end of rassle i'm looking forward to it the Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla. The plot. Oh, by the way, the plot where we're, we're finding this MacGuffin. Okay, good. <laughs> Part four. I hope everybody out there is enjoying this with us. I hope you're reading along with us. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hesenklaw. And I'm Pam Bador. And that's one year. <laughs>